Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word of the Lord that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Right away in chapter 9, verse 1, you see what God's doing in Deuteronomy. He, quite literally, is calling his people forward. Go west over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan and receive my promise. And you're going to do this only as you trust me enough to obey my commands. Really, all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 remind God's people just how amazing of a gift that God is about to give them. You can take a look again at chapters 9, verses 1 through 3. God's going to give them a victory over nations that are bigger than them, they're stronger than them, and more established than them. Even nations they were previously scared of, like the Anakim. But not just victory, God's going to give them the amazing gift of this good land. He talks about that in chapter 9, verse 6. It's not like the land they were used to, whether that was in Egypt or in the wilderness. Now in chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, this is land that God himself takes care of. So chapters 9 through 11, God's telling them something incredible is about to happen. Yes, even you, little Israel, will have military prowess and material abundance. But that's not all these chapters are telling them. God says something incredible is about to happen. So how will you respond? You're going to experience great victory and that you have no, no business experiencing. Will you let it go to your head? Or will you remain humble? You're going to live in a land where you have more than you've ever had before. Are you going to squander it and throw it away? Or will you continue to live in my ways? It's not a perfect analogy, but it's almost like God's telling his people, listen, you're about to win the lottery. And you got to be really careful about how you respond to that and your way of life after you win the lottery. I wonder, has anybody ever seen the Powerball lottery billboard on I-480? It's red. It just got, it has this astronomical number on it in big, in big bold letters. It's usually in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It's always a big enough number to just catch my eye and blow me away. Do <laughs> you ever think what you would do if you won that much money? No. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> disclaimer. I'm not saying to leave here and go buy a lottery ticket. It might not be the best use of your resources. But it, let's just, for the sake of argument, imagine if you did win that much money, hundreds of millions of dollars. How easy would that be um, to let it go to your head? How easy would it be to then forget where you came from? 
How easy would it be to waste it? How easy would it be to adopt a completely new way of life? That's sort of like the message of Deuteronomy 9, 10, and 11. You know, for us, those who have come to believe and follow Jesus, it might not feel like it, but you and I have effectively won the lottery. We've experienced victory over opponents we have no business uh, experiencing victory over. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these chapters might be about a different time than about a different people, but they help you and I uh, know how to respond and live on the other side of victory in Jesus. So here's the main point of these three chapters. You'll find it printed on the bulletin, on the back side of the bulletin. You can sum up these three chapters like this, that on the other side of victory, it's easy to forget how much God has done for you and how much you still need him. So continue humbly to lean on and live for the God of grace. He does for you what you can't do for yourself. Over these three chapters, I think there are three different sections that build on one another and they flow like this. The first message to God's people is, remember, you're not good enough. The second message is, remember, you're not strong enough. And then the third message is, but you have a choice. So the message of the first section is, you're not good enough. That first section runs from chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 12. So on the other side of victory, once they're in the land, they've beaten these nations and they live in it. God tells them how they're to respond. He says, remember, your goodness didn't win you all these victories. Let's revisit verses we've read already, especially verses four and five of chapter nine. One commentator on Deuteronomy likens these verses to a math equation. The people might think that the equation is like this. It goes, our righteousness plus the nation's wickedness equals God giving us the victory. In other words, they might think, well, God gave us the victory over these nations because you know what? We just must be better people than they are. We don't worship idols. These people, they worship idols. Those people, you know what? Those people are the ones who, that's wrong with the world. The world would be such a better place if more people were like us and less people were like them. That's why God gave us the victory. No, no, no. God corrects the equation in verse five. He says, actually, it's the, the nation's wickedness, yes, but plus my faithfulness, which equals me giving you this victory. He tells them, it's not because of your goodness. It's because of my grace. So on the other side of victory, they might be tempted to think that they're better off than the nations, that they're better people than they are. But the rest of this section throughout chapter nine and a little bit into chapter 10, it's going to prove they're actually no better than the nations that they're driving out. Take a look, for example, at chapter nine, verse six. It says plainly, you are a stubborn people. Or chapter nine, verse seven. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 8, even at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, even at the place of the greatest revelation of God you've experienced, even there, you provoke the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you, listen to this, that he was ready to destroy you. So hold on, you see what this is saying? They deserved the same exact outcome as the rest of these nations. Now, these are big statements. What's the evidence for all this? Because you can't just call people stubborn and rebellious without backing it up with specifics. Well, that's what Moses goes on to do. He backs it up with specifics. 
He sort of double clicks on what happened at Horeb or at Mount Sinai, and he gives a blow-by-blow replay. It goes like this. We can summarize it in our own words. It all started at Mount Sinai with Moses going up to the mountain to hear from God himself. Moses is up there for 40 days. He hears how God commits himself in relationship to the people that he has saved. God gives Moses the parameters for what it's going to look like for his people to live before him. These parameters are summed up in the Ten Commandments. God himself writes these Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. So you can almost call call this occasion when Moses is up on the mountain hearing from the Lord. It's almost like a type of wedding ceremony. Even throughout the Old Testament, God likens himself to the groom who has wedded himself to the bride of Israel. And so now with the wedding ceremony complete, Moses comes down to the mountain. And what does Moses find? Well, God tells him before Moses finds it. it. Chapter 9, verse 12. The people have made a metal image and they're worshiping it. And in response, God is ready with divorce papers. As others have described it, when Israel made and worshiped the golden calf, it's like they were cheating on their spouse during their honeymoon. So God's ready to start over and he would be completely justified to do it. They betrayed the one who had been so good to them. They betrayed the one who had heard their cries. They betrayed the one who had set them free. They betrayed the one who powerfully rescued them. They betrayed the one who had made them his own. Moses seems to recognize also what they actually deserve. He breaks those tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them, in part because I think he knew knew that the people have already broken those Ten Commandments, and he knows what they deserve. You read on, you see, he knows that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But as it continues, as chapter 9 continues, we discover that the people don't get what they deserve. They don't end up being destroyed, not for what they did at Sinai, and neither what they did for in other places. Chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. They didn't just rebel at Sinai, they rebelled again throughout the wilderness, and they even refused to go into the promised land the first time. Moses calls this people the rebellious and stubborn people, and he has backed up his case with specifics. And he gives that final verdict in verse 24. It's devastating, really. He says, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Man. So how did they survive if they were this stubborn and rebellious? Why are, they be, why are they able to enter the promised land now? Why are they going to experience victory over the nations who live there? Why? Is it because they're so good? Of course not. It's because even as God is just, so also God is merciful. God appointed Moses to stand before him on their behalf. And when Moses does this in chapter 9, Moses doesn't like, talk God off of a ledge saying, God, you lost your 40-day anger management chip, and so let me calm you down. Moses doesn't tell God, God, how could you you threaten to do this? Don't be such a moral monster. No, 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 Moses doesn't argue against God's character. If you read closely, Moses actually appeals to God's character in verses 25 through 29. You see, the people may have broken their covenant with God, but there is a covenant with God Uh, that God made with their forefathers that wasn't broken. And that covenant remained unfulfilled. So Moses appeals to God's faithfulness to keep his promises. And further, if Israel was destroyed now, Moses is concerned that God's goodness and God's greatness would be blasphemed among the nations. 
So Moses appeals to God's good love for his own glory. As we keep reading, God was pleased to work through Moses's prayers in order to carry out his will. Pleased to work through Moses's prayers in order to carry out his own will. If you ever wonder, what's the point of praying if God already controls everything? If you ever wonder that, well, first of all, if I would ask you, why would you pray if God wasn't in control of everything? How could you have any confidence that he could do anything in response to your prayers? But secondly, remember that God doesn't just plan the outcomes. God also plans the way he'll accomplish the outcomes, not just the ends, but the means. God's gracious to choose the prayers of his people as one of the means by which he accomplishes his will. Brother, sister, that means when you pray, you get to participate in how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. You get to participate in that. Oh my goodness, if that's not good, good incentive, good motivation, even to come back together this evening, shameless plug to pray, I don't know what is. Well, just to continue to narrate this section of all of chapter nine into the first part of chapter 10, when Israel gets to the promised land and they're on the other side of victory, they won't be able to say it was because of how good they were. No, no, no. They've been nothing but stubborn and rebellious ever since they left Egypt. They're alive only because of God's mercy, God's faithfulness, and God's zeal for his own glory. As chapter 10 opens, we see that God answered Moses' prayers. God gives them new tablets with the Ten Commandments, and they were still around to that day, verse 5. Chapter 10, verses 6 to 7, God answers Moses' prayer. They They resume their journey to the promised land. Chapter 10, verse 6, God answers Moses' prayer. The high priest Aaron, well, yeah, he was one of the rebels, but he didn't die. His family still served in that office as well. God answered Moses' prayer. Chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, they still have all the blessings of their relationship with God, blessings that are mediated through the tribe of Levi. God answered Moses' prayer. Chapter 10, verse 11, God still calls them to go into the promised land. Now, before we move on, I just want to reflect on this first section in a couple of ways. And I'm just thinking how this is a surprising message to people in the world. This message that you're not good enough to please God, you're not good enough to earn your way to a good place with him. You're not good enough for that. That message is surprising to the world. The world assumes that all religions are pretty much the same. Right, there might be some details that are different, but they're, they're pretty much the same because they all have relatively the same goal. All religions are trying to get you to be a good person. They're going to tell you how to be a good person. And right, and good people are those who go to nirvana or heaven or fill in the blank good afterlife. So yeah, religions might contain slightly different messages about how to live that good life, whether that's the five pillars of Islam or the eightfold path of Buddhism or the Ten Commandments of the Bible. But if done right, each religion can produce somewhat decent people. So the message is, well, just pick the one you sort of vibe with the most or just take the best of each one. But Deuteronomy 9 says there's actually a problem with that. The problem is you and I haven't lived a good life to please God because we have served the God of self. And by doing that, we have betrayed the God who is infinitely good. If you could earn your way back to him, all you would need is a message about what you need to do in order to do that. But here, the message isn't about your own goodness. The message is about God's goodness. The message isn't about what you need to do. The message is about what God has done 
And then what do you do in response? God's provided an even better mediator to stand in your place than Moses. It's his own son, Jesus. He lived the good life that you didn't live. And yet, he took the destruction that your rebellion and stubbornness deserves. Friend, you're not good enough to get yourself into heaven. But Jesus is. So you trust him. You love him. You follow him. But brothers and sisters, you need to be careful. You shouldn't think that this lesson of humility, that I'm not good enough, is only for those who believe the good news, who, who don't believe the good news about Jesus. No, it's still for those who do believe that good news. If you know that you are who you are, not by your goodness, but by God's grace, if you know that about yourself, then your walk with the Lord needs to undergo the same transformation that Jacob's walk did. I don't know if you remember Jacob from the book of Genesis. Remember, Jacob started off, he, he tricked his older brother Esau out of his birthright, and then he tricked his father-in-law Laban out of his sheep. And then uh, wily Jacob uh, encounters God, and God humbles Jacob. He, God basically dislocates his hip. So it's like Jacob used to walk with a strut, but now for the rest of his life, Jacob has to walk with a limp. It's like God tells Jacob, no longer are you going to lean on your own wisdom or your own ability. You will have to lean on me. My friend, if you know you're, not, you're saved, not because of your goodness, but because of God's grace, if you know that, you don't strut with swagger. You know, say, you know, look at all the, the bad people out there, the predators, the addicts, the criminals, you know, I'm not like them. Now, if you know you're saved, not because of your goodness, but because of God's grace, you don't strut with swagger. You limp with humility. You say, apart from the grace of God, I'm no different from any other person. And just maybe this is a good question to reflect on, perhaps even during lunch with fellow church members. You know, uh, uh, what would a church be like where no one struts and everyone limps? What would a church be like if it was like that? Okay, so a little bit of review. On the other side of victory, when they get into the promised land, when they drive out these nations that live there, when they effectively win the lottery, it's going to be easy to forget how much God has done for them. It's going to be easy to forget how much they still need God. And so God kind of brings his people back down to earth. He tells them in the first section, you didn't get this far because of how good you were. It was despite your badness and because of my grace and the second section runs from chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. I think the main takeaway here is once they get into the land, they need to remember, you are not strong enough to live how God calls you to live. You are not strong enough. Once again, they're going to need God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. So hopefully you're still open to Deuteronomy. Follow along as I read chapter 10, verses 12 through 22, the second section. Chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. It says, and now, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, 
Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Just a few highlights from this section here. I want you to look again at how it starts. And now, O Israel, with that little phrase. This is like the powerful therefore that we find in many of the New Testament letters as it transitions from the truth to the application. So it's like all these chapters are set up in light of what God has done for you out of his grace. And now, O Israel, this is what you do for him out of love and gratitude. Another highlight from this section, take a look again at verses 12 and 13, and they sound a lot like the Shema from chapter six, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Now, by most calculations, there are some 613 commands in the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible. But here, Moses says that if they do this, they will do all that God requires of them. What does he mean by that? I think he's saying that if they really do give God their total and exclusive love, then the rest will follow. And why should they give God their total and exclusive love? We'll take a look at the end of verse 13. They should do this because it's for their good. God desires their good. It reminds me of our house. We have a, a fenced-in backyard. Uh, so a lot of you have been there before. Um, and from our dog Annie's perspective, uh, the fence inhibits her freedom. Right? Annie wants to go out and play with the eight-point buck. Uh, she wants to go play with the howling coyotes. But what Annie doesn't know is actually the fence protects her freedom. She can play and roam securely within the life-preserving boundaries of the fence. The fence is good for her. God's law works the same way. Another highlight from this section, chapter 10, verses 12 to 22, you can notice God's great love in this section. Back in Deuteronomy 7, it says that God loves them even, they're, even though they're so small and have nothing to offer him. Here in Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 to 15, God loves them, not be, even though, not because they're so small, but even though he's so big and doesn't need them. The God who made Orion's belt and Jupiter in the Milky Way has set his love on them. A couple more highlights from this section. You, you can see God's unrivaled greatness and goodness. Verse 17, God has no rival. He has no competitor. He is God of gods, Lord of lords. His unrivaled goodness, he plays no favorites. Verse 18, he loves the least of these. Even sojourners, even immigrants, refugees, like they were when they lived in Egypt. And so they will display their love for God when they love like God. One more highlight from this section. You can see God's proven grace. Verses 21 and 22, he is their praise. He's the one they are to adore, the one they're to savor, the one they're to treasure, to worship. 
Notice he's not just God, he is their God. He's purchased them, saved them, blessed them. This, verses 12 to 22, is a beautiful section that the Israelites could go back to time and time again. It contains so many of the themes of the book of Deuteronomy. But if you notice, I skipped over the verse that lies at the very heart of this section. That's verse 16. It says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So this entire section, 12 to 22, is like a sandwich. If you look back at verse 16, the therefore in that verse is saying, you should do this in light of all that I've just said. And then the word for in verse 17 is saying, you should do verse 16 because of all that I'm about to say. Right? So what comes before and what comes after supports verse 16. So big picture, this great call in their lives to love the Lord their God totally and exclusively, to love the one who chose them and saved them and blessed them, to love the one who alone is God and to love like he loves The only way they are going to fulfill this great call on their lives is if they first circumcise the foreskin of their heart and are no longer stubborn. That's the only way they're going to do this. So God's saying, there's something about your heart that keeps you from listening to me. There is something about your heart that keeps you from loving me. So if you're going to live how I call you to live in this promised land, you are, going to, you are going to need to remove that part of your heart. Now, reflecting on this a little bit, again, I think this is surprising to the world. God's not telling them, listen up, you know, just do these rules and you'll be good. Now, he addresses something deeper than their external behavior. He addresses their internal hearts. I think that's surprising to most people in the world. It reminds me how C.S. Lewis writes that there are basically three, times, three kinds of people. Three kinds of people. He says there are those who live purely for themselves. And then there are those who know they should try to follow some sort of rules or code, but they actually really just want to live for themselves. They treat trying to live for some kind of rules or code. They, they treat it like you treat paying your taxes. I hate to remind you of it because it's tax season. <laughs> But, you know, whether you use H&R Block or TurboTax or whether you just do it yourself, um, I imagine each one of you here, you faithfully pay your taxes. At least I hope you do. Uh, the Bible says too. Uh, I imagine you faithfully pay your taxes. But I bet most of you here secretly hope that you're going to get something in return left over to spend on yourself. That's how a lot of people live. So group one lives only for themselves. Group two tries to live right or live for God, but they actually just want to live for themselves. The third kind of people, the third group, well, Lewis says that they've, quote, they've been turned around. They've been reconditioned. They've been made into an entirely new thing. He says the will of Christ no longer limits their will. It has become their will. The kind of person that God envisions in Deuteronomy 10, 16 is the kind of person, as Pastor Dane Ortland writes, who isn't just different on the outside, but is actually different on the inside. It's the kind of person who doesn't just obey God. It's the kind of person who actually enjoys obeying God. Did you see the difference there? Maybe if you can't see the difference, you, you could think about kids. Think about the goal we have for our, our kids. Our, our, our goal should be deeper than just to get kids to live right. 
Our goal should be that kids would want to live right. Gaining external submission is different than winning over hearts. We want a heart that doesn't just obey God, but that actually enjoys obeying God. So the question is, how do you get a heart like that? Is it through perfect teaching or parenting tactics? We should be faithful to God's instructions in those areas. But how do you get a heart like this? Well, look again at the verse, at chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Think about this. Can you follow this verse literally? We got people here who have had leaky valves in their hearts, uh, people who've had heart attacks, people who have AFib. I don't know a single one of those people who have cut open their chest and try to fix it themselves. So this command in Deuteronomy 10, 16 gets picked up in the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Listen to this. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. How do you get a heart like that? Not from you. God must do it. Ultimately, we read about how God does that from Romans 2. Lots to unpack from that section, but just to draw your attention again to Romans 2, verses 28 to 29. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. That's what we've been saying, something deeper than that. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Listen to how God does it. By the Spirit, not by the letter. So if you're going to have a heart that doesn't just obey God, but that actually enjoys obeying God, if his desires will become your desires, if his love is going to shape how you love, then you need the Holy Spirit to make you new. My friend, if you feel the chains of trying to live the right way, but still wanting to live your own way, if you feel those chains, today is the day to cry out to God and take hold of the Son of God who died for your pardon and to trust that for those who do that, the spirit of power who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you so that you might live like he lives. Oh, my brother and sister, on the other side of victory in Christ, you can live how God calls you to live. Keep hoping in this, Christian. But I am gonna nuance it a little bit as you walk with the Lord by the spirit I'm going to nuance it in this way by telling you that the Spirit's work in your life is sort of like the HVAC vent in my office, right? It blows like a freight train engine, but it keeps the place warm. Uh, There are things that I can do to close that vent and stifle the Spirit's work in me. Things I can do to close off that vent and stifle the Spirit's work in me. I can keep my sin to myself. I can keep my Bible closed. I can keep my mouth shut instead of pray. I can stay far away from other Christians. I can keep my eyes directed at me and not directed at Christ. My brother and sister, what I'm saying to you, this nuance is is that open yourself up to the ways that the Spirit works in your heart. Open yourself up to it. Open yourself up. Open that vent to honest confession and repentance of sin. Open that vent. Open yourself up to attentive and reflective and daily reading of the word of God. 
Open up that vent. Open yourself up to real friendship with other Christians. Open yourself up to really praying and not just saying your prayers. Open yourself up to treasuring Jesus, not just as something to add to your life, but as someone who is your life. As you do this little by little, keep that vent open. The Spirit will continue to transform your heart to be like Christ's. A heart that doesn't just obey God, but actually enjoys obeying God. So in these chapters, just as a review, God talks about what their life should look like on the other side of victory. They'll enter the promised land, they'll they'll defeat the nations, so now what? Well, now they're going to need to remember all that God has done for them. They didn't get this far because of how good they were. Now they're going to need to still lean on what God continues to do for them. They don't have the heart they need in order to obey the Lord. Their hearts are bent in on themselves, not bent upward toward him. Chapter 11 is largely a review and capstone of all that we've seen in Deuteronomy since chapter 4. Chapters 4 through 11 deal mainly with why they should live in God's ways and how they're going to live in God's ways. They don't talk so much about what those ways are, at least yet. That's coming up in chapters 12 through 26. So today we saw in chapter 9 that they didn't get into the land because they were good enough. In chapter 10, they don't don't live in the land. They're not going to live well in the land because they're strong enough. And now chapter 11, they have a choice to make. We'll cover an overview of this briefly as Moses just sort of lays it out for them in chapter 11. They have a choice to make. Chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or are not seen, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. Moses has done this before. It's like Moses is telling them, listen, guys, I'm not talking to your kids. I'm not talking to your parents. I'm talking to you. Can't pass this off to another generation. You need to remember who God is and what he has done. Moses Moses lays it out for them. Chapter 11, verses 8 to 17, Moses lays out the land for them. He reminds them God's placing them in a good land with big potential And the good land, he says, can become an even better land if they continue in God's ways. Like we've noticed in previous weeks, this sounds, again, a lot like what God told Adam and Eve when he placed them in Eden. He told them to work it and to guard it and to follow him, and that Eden would get even better. Now, just looking at verses 8 to 17, if you read these verses in detail, you can see how, again, uh, teachers might misuse paragraphs like these. Um, and to say what they aren't trying to say. We talked about this a lot last week. Can't say everything we did last week here. But I want you to remember what Deuteronomy 9 and 10 have already said. That God's people, their hearts are to be first hearts that live for God, not hearts that live for God's gifts. There are even occasions in the Old Testament where God keeps good gifts from his people in order to prove that they are most satisfied with him. Read Job. Read Psalm 73. The bigger point here in Deuteronomy 11 is that God is the one who controls the rains and the climates and no one else. And so they should live for and trust in no one else but him. Not even the rival gods who claimed to control the rains and the climates. Moses lays it out for them in chapter 11. In verses 18 to 25, Moses lays out the future If they're going to have ongoing obedience and ongoing blessing, they will need ongoing teaching. So he tells them again, they need to pass down the knowledge of God and his ways 
to the next generation. Moses lays it out for them in chapter 11, and then he tells them in verses 26 through 32, you guys have a choice to make. This choice is symbolized with two different mountains, mountains that are on the other side of the Jordan River in the promised land. There's Mount Gerizim, which represents trusting God and following in his ways. And then there's Mount Ebal, which represents trusting in themselves or other things and going their own way. It's been observed that Gerizim was fruitful with a lot of vegetation, but Ebal was barren. They have a choice to make. Continue in God's ways or their own ways. We remember, like we said a couple weeks ago, that their salvation wasn't the reward for their obedience, but their salvation was the reason for their obedience. It's why they should obey. They were already God's people. Victory has already been won. So the question is, how will they now live? How will they respond to winning the lottery? How about you, Christian? On the other side of victory in Jesus, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. Either you can walk with a strut or you can walk with a limp. You can be proud of your own goodness or you can lean on God's grace. That he has provided a better mediator than Moses. Jesus, who followed in God's ways and himself earned God's blessing. You have a choice to make on the other side of victory. You can attempt to live for God either in your own strength and wisdom or by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. To return to Pastor Jane Orland, just because it's so good. He says that a Christian who lives by his own strength and wisdom is like having a Lamborghini engine under the hood of a car, but trying to move that car forward like Fred, Fred Flintstone using the power of your own legs. The message to them is the same message to you on the other side of victory in Jesus. You are to keep going the way you got started through God and not through yourself. Okay, let's pray. Oh Lord, we remember what we sang and celebrated. Marvelous grace of you, our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. And we will add even to that grace that exceeds the power of our old selves. Grace that gives us power to respond to our victory in Jesus with humility and with obedience, even heartfelt obedience. So God, would you bring each person here to open themselves up to the work of your spirit so that we might live like your son, not just obey you, but enjoy obeying you. And we pray, Lord, for those here who have not yet taken hold of Jesus by faith, who have not yet embraced him, had life in his name, that they would see that there is no one else who can stand before you and earn your blessing besides him. So would they take hold of him today and live new by your spirit? Would you be glorified in each one of us as we respond to your word? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.